0: This is History 605, where we discuss everything from crazy horse to cyberspace. I'm Dr. Ben Jones, South Dakota State Historian, and Director of the South Dakota State Historical Society. Welcome to the show. Today, our guest is Mr. Paul Wilson. He is a political consultant who specializes in TV advertising. He worked on both the George Mic- Mickelson's campaigns for governor in 1986 and in 1990. He has a master's degree in journalism with a focus on political communications. He's worked in or led political consulting firms in Virginia, but he got a start on the Mickelson campaigns in South Dakota. He's the author of an essay coming out in the fourth volume of The Plains Political Tradition with South Dakota Historical Society Press. Paul, how are you doing today?
1: How are you? Thank you. I'm good. I'm doing very
0: well. Great. As I was reading the essay that you wrote and uh, so forth, it, it uh, certainly made clear that successful political campaigns don't just happen. There's often a, a well-laid out plan that can explain the candidate to the voters in order to earn their vote. Um, Paul, our guest today, has a great deal of insight into how the outsider, uh, which I was uh, interested in learning about why George Mickelson was the outsider, how he came from behind to win the governor's seat. Um, and as many of you know, tragically, Governor Mickelson and seven others were killed in a plane crash in 19 April, on 19th of April of 1993. At that point, he had served as governor for just over six years. And while a lot of attention has been paid to the loss of these eight people, today I think you'll enjoy gaining some insight into how George Mickelson succeeded at convincing South Dakotans to vote for him in the first place. Uh, Paul, I was wondering if you could kind of set the scene, how you got started in politics and why you became interested in working in a campaign in South Dakota.
1: Well, I, uh, I started by... Uh, following my mom around when I was about six and, uh, you know, handing out buttons and wearing buttons and all the campaign paraphernalia. And uh, lo and behold, uh, we we got into uh, a local race where all the kids in the neighborhood hmm. ran the Disney characters for president and vice president. And I had the good fortune to have Bambi for president. <laughs> and... Uh, the, all the neighbors came to a garage uh, and voted, and uh, Bambi won. And so it was my first great victory. But what it did is it just it just seared in me uh, a love of politics, uh, which continued. So I took that and really ran with it. And so everything in school that I could think of, that would pertain to better campaigning, I tried to focus in on it. An example would be typing, you know, so I stayed after school with um, the typing teacher to earn extra credit and gain a skill set, which I thought, well, I'm going to need that, you know, you got to type those speeches Mm -hmm. and it it proved to be a a wise decision. So uh, that's how I got my start and uh, then went to college and, uh, became a little diabolical about it. We we bore in on all the campaign skills that you would need, including making TV commercials, and uh, and that's where I, I got the background.
0: Okay. And if I recall right from the essay, I think you mentioned something about um, working a change into your curriculum and your master's degree program to kind of focus on political communications.
1: Yes, yes, and so I... I went to uh, the dean of the school. Of course, he was interested in journalism, and I said, "Oh no, we need we need it. Uh, somebody to focus on campaigning." And so they let me run with it, and so much, you know, so much for the past, but it really helped uh, helped me to get going.
0: Right. So as you leave school, then why uh, that's that's in Missouri? Why did you um, get attracted to running a campaign in South Dakota?
1: Well, I. Uh, there was a well-known uh, campaign firm called Bailey Deardorff. And uh, so I was uh, working in the journalism department, you know, I was uh, uh, work, working in uh, radio at the time, and I said, well, I want to campaign. And so picked up the phone and called the Bailey Deardorff team and said, well, I'll be, I'll be coming to work for you in the fall and uh, they go, well, okay. <laughs> and so without any interview or anything, I was on board. And, uh, and that's how I, I got my start. And uh, they let me just run with it. And uh, I wasn't totally alone in those first years. I had guidance.
2: Mm-hmm. and
1: uh, So that's, that's how I got the start.
0: So in the gubernatorial campaign then for 1986, who were the candidates and what was the what were the issues and how did you kind of get involved directly with with uh, that?
1: Right. The uh, there were there were four candidates, and uh, I would just say up front, Mickelson was dead last. He had four percent in the polls. Mm-hmm. Uh, you couldn't have found a tougher field of candidates. You had the former congressman. Uh, Clint Roberts from out west, uh, west of the Missouri River. And uh, the, the next candidate was Lowell Hansen, and his family owned uh, Jackrabbit bus lines. And uh, he was the lieutenant governor under Bill Janklow, uh, the very popular governor, although it did not carry over to Lowell Hanson as well. And then the, uh, the third candidate was Alice Kundert. She had been Secretary of State in South Dakota for years. Everyone knew her. Her hallmark was going to every single event possible all over the state. So she drove just hundreds of thousands of miles. And uh, I, had, I had been approached by somebody uh, early on who said, you know, who are you thinking about working for? And I said, Well, what about this Alice Cunder? Now I've never met Alice. And they said, No, you don't. You don't want to work for her. And I said, Well, I I know some people that worked on the campaign. And they go, No, you want you want someone else. You want this guy Mickelson. And I said, But he's dead last in the polls. He only has like two or four percent. And they said, He's the best candidate. Get on with him. And so I shifted strategies and went after Mickelson. Uh, and uh, I recall we I, I talked him into meeting with me in Minneapolis, halfway, kind of <laughs> between mm-hmm. uh, between South Dakota and and, uh, and Alexandria, Virginia. Uh, and so we we decided to meet there. And you know he walks in the room. He's six foot. Four, uh, you know, 250 pounds. I played football, and I'm like five seven mm-hmm. uh, on a good day. And uh, but we hit it off uh, right away, and uh, we, you know, realized that he was not <laughs> he was not able to run the campaign at that level. He was able to implement, and one of his uh, colleagues. Uh, said when I was uh, interviewing him, he said, well, the thing with Mickelson is he's an old football player. So he, what he can do is execute the play. Mm-hmm. So if you tell him to go to some town and knock on all the doors, he'll do it. Mm-hmm. But he might not be able to think of, or uh, that's not his strength is to decide what to do. His job and, and his strength is, is uh, you know, doing it. So uh, so that's how we got started, and it uh, uh, turned out to be a good partnership. There was a, uh, a fellow who, an older gentleman who uh, had been in the military, and he wore this little pin, which was uh, a rifle, and uh, that rifle signified that he had fought in three wars. And uh, when you think about it, that's very hard to do. In a lifetime, and he had he had three wars. His name was Dwight Adams. Yes, and he was the campaign manager. Okay, uh, so it was a, a great team, and uh, Nicholson would would do what you said. You know, yeah. So it isn't often you get that.
0: So as you as you think about writing out the plan, which which I'll backtrack here for a second. You you donated to the state archives of the campaign plans, which I appreciate and. I was interested in if you could describe kind of how they were crafted.
1: Well, we would we start by interviewing uh, the twenty best political minds that were out there, and that included, uh, uh, you know, the reporters uh, and the columnists with the newspapers because they frequently follow this, and uh, and so we interviewed them. We interviewed the politicos, you know, like the state party chairman. And so we gathered all this intelligence. And, of course, we took uh, a, a poll. We had a great pollster in Fred Steeper from uh, Market Strategies out of Detroit. And uh, uh, we gathered all this information. And, and then uh, it became clear as the more information you gathered that what you had to do. Example, it became clear that we weren't going to beat Uh, Clint Roberts in western uh, South Dakota. Uh, He was going to win there because he had run for Congress. Mm -hmm. So our strategy had to be, how do we win without a big chunk of the vote in western uh, South Dakota? So uh, that would be an example of how we crafted the strategy. And so then we did a great statistical analysis. And (laughs) if you ever drop by the Library, you can read it, Mm -hmm. but uh, we had all this background on how many votes you'd need by county. And uh, we came up with the idea of hey, Mickelson, he can't go on the air yet, you know, it takes too much money. And so we said, well, we don't have a choice, we're going to go door to door. And so everyone, uh, or a lot of people, said, well, that's stupid, you know, it's too too big a state, too much ground to cover. Uh, But we said, no, uh, it's pretty cost-effective because when you think about South Dakota, you have the western side uh, with Pennington, and then you have uh, Minnehaha County with Sioux Falls, and both of those little uh, areas comprise most of the boats. So uh, uh, it was easy to target Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what we did. We targeted the uh, the best precincts uh, that you could find uh, for each each candidate, and uh, and for the for ours, we went out there and went door to door. So uh, it was a uh, a great little campaign, and we determined that we would need about thirty seven thousand. 250 votes, and uh, and Clint Roberts, that Clint would need about uh, 37,250 votes. So we needed both, and so that's what we went after, and it was very close Yeah, in the primary.
0: So when you think about the, the phrase return on investment, your investment is your candidate's time going door-to-door, which is a huge time commitment. Um, yes. as opposed to being before you could kind of raise the funds to do your TV buys and so forth. You do, you do talk about, um, another thing he was doing in the spring of 86, uh, with farmers. And I was wondering if you could go through some of his, um, well, experiences was, with uh, that. It was a
1: critical time. You had, uh, what we called the farm crisis going on. And that was this plunging agricultural prices and, uh, uh, and, and just the farmers were forced off their land. They were being foreclosed by the banks. Uh, it was a disastrous time for agriculture and, uh, uh and nobody had any ideas of what you, you just had to live through it. And, uh, so we, we devised uh, the notion of we have to appeal to uh, the farm vote. And uh, so we realized early on this was one of the main points of the campaign. We realized that uh, Mickelson, uh, although well known, his father had been governor as well, but a long time before uh, this election, that uh, he needed he needed to uh, really overcome this notion of. That he wasn't a farmer, he was a lawyer, and so we we tried to hide it. You know, we dressed him in jeans, and uh, and uh, he he was he was the man's man. He was a great hunter and everything, but he was not a farmer. And so um, we went ahead and built the campaign around uh, around him. uh, uh, You know, trying to convince voters. That he understood agriculture and so one of the ideas that we had was to uh, run the campaign uh, without uh, telling anyone uh, without explaining that we were um, you know suited for the job even though we had no agricultural background and uh, it worked but it it took a long time to drive that message home
0: were you able then to use some of those visits, uh, to farmers and ranchers? Yeah, we, and we,
1: what we did is we said, we're going to send Mickelson to all of these different farms. And I think we had 18 of them and, uh, you know, they were soybean farms. They were, you know, uh, you know, corn, uh, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he went out there and we would have him work the farm for, uh, uh, you know, a day, uh, but he learned to talk the talk and he uh, he had really heartfelt stories from the farmers themselves about the hard times they were under. And so it gave him empathy for the agricultural community. And uh, uh, so, you know, it was a, a terrific strategy. Now, it was kept hidden from the voters because we wanted Mickelson to get up to speed Before it became known, that he really didn't know very much about agriculture. Uh, And one of the, we got a break, and uh, it was one of the key points of the campaign. Uh, And that is, we show up at this one farm, and we sweep out the barn, and we help the farmer, you know, hook up equipment. And then one of the farmhands comes and says, hey, uh, they're birthing this calf. Uh, Do you want to be a part of it? And so we take Mickelson over, we, you know, we have the camera there and we say, go ahead and pull the calf. And wow. that's, uh, that's a phrase, which means grab the hind legs as the calf is being born and pull. And uh, so that's, they call it calf pulling and that's what Mickelson did. And so he burst this calf and we decided to put it into a commercial on TV. And of course it was, as you might suspect, a pretty gross, <laughs> a pretty gross happening. Yeah. As, uh, Mickelson grabs the calf's legs, pulls, the calf is torn successfully and struggles to its feet. And, uh, of course it's the talk of the town, you know, you only needed to see it once before you, uh, you know, wanted, it, wanted it to talk about it. And, uh, so that's how we got in the game uh, is we had the, the calf pulling.
0: So you think that ad kind of broke through the noise with the other two candidates, I do, other right. three candidates?
1: It, it, was, it was a great one. And uh, you have Joni Ernst in Iowa who uh, did roughly the same thing uh, 20 years later. Okay. But uh, Mickelson had pioneered it uh, as a way to gain attention and show people that, you know, he understood agriculture, he understood the economy. So it was symbolic of a lot of things, not just, you know, can you pull a calf, but that you uh, are willing to uh, get your hands dirty, that you're willing to, uh, to understand the state and to, uh, dig in and, and help. So it was uh, luck that we were there at that time, uh, but it, it sure paid off.
0: And then what happens to that Uh, calf?
1: Well, then we decided the whole plan of doing these farms was then to come back and holding the blue ribbon in his other hand. Uh, and so uh, it was ironic, uh, but uh, it drove home the point and, and certainly helped Nicholson. Uh, it was a very close race, and so every little bit helped, and, and that certainly did.
0: Right.
2: He helped pull this heifer that day, and it created quite a stir. But George went on to win the primary in June. This heifer went on to win her class at the State Holstein Show. George Mickelson, he'll deliver for South Dakota.
0: Well, you you, uh, you talked about trying to get to a certain number of votes and so forth. How do polls help you kind of manage where you are when the campaign is really getting down to the last few weeks? Well, we
1: uh, we'll, we'll take a poll and we'll analyze the what is the likely election by looking at previous election results. And so we knew that Clint Roberts uh, could, could be very formidable, uh, and Mickelson had to, you know, overpower him, and we had the number of votes he needed. And so it played out almost exactly as we had planned. And uh, Mickelson, uh, you know, fought for, every little, every little vote and, uh, and he campaigned some days and it was five below. Uh, Mm -hmm. Now he didn't campaign a lot, but he campaigned some at that temperature. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, and so that, that just was an example of how we, we search for every single possible vote. And so we knew every precinct how many Republicans were there, what percent we would try and win, and then we sent people door to door. So Mm -hmm. it was uh, very well organized. Dwight Adams, I spoke of, the manager, uh, he was just a superb planner. And uh, I'd never seen a campaign that uh, actually stopped working at 5 o'clock in the afternoon because he was so well organized. Oh, okay. uh, Yeah. And and, uh, and Mickelson was a, a terrific campaigner.
0: Now you you mentioned Janklow just briefly as, as sitting governor. Um, if I recall, he's running for something that year too, isn't he? As he's right. leaving, he was he's running
1: been... at that time, he was running uh, uh, to you know for the Senate uh, nomination, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, and so he lost the primary. And Jim Abner was the senator, uh, an older gentleman, but he was loved, beloved by uh, every Republican, and so they didn't want Janklow trying to take it from uh, from Abner. So that was a uh, you know fight, and we wanted Janklow's support because Janklow was a strong governor; he was seen as strong. And we wanted to be perceived in the same way, but he wouldn't. He, being Janklow, wouldn't wouldn't commit to supporting us until his primary was over. So uh, he lost his primary and uh, was able to come support us. And it it was a delicate situation because Janklow uh, uh, was, you know, running for. For uh, uh, he started off running for for governor, I, I mean for the Senate, and uh, Lowell Hansen, his own lieutenant governor, uh, you know, wanted his support but didn't get it. Yeah, and so we edged him out, and that became a very big factor in the race.
0: And then after and we had
1: a uh, com- a commercial, you can see uh, we sent this. Commercials to the uh, state archives, so uh, uh, you can you can find them. But uh, uh, the commercial that uh, that we liked had Jenko wandering <laughs> around the uh, the chambers, not wandering but uh, talking as he walked around the chambers and saying, you know, I like George Mickelson. and uh, so it 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 was a great ad to show that. Uh, Cenkler was really for Mickelson.
2: As governor, I've worked here with both George Mickelson and Lars Herseth, and there's a big difference in their records. While Lars Herseth sat in this chair, on four occasions, he sponsored state income taxes. And on 10 occasions, he voted for him. Those votes could be costing your family over $1,000 a year. George Mickelson has never sponsored an income tax, and 21 times he's voted against one. If you don't want an income tax in South Dakota, then like me, you want George Mickelson sitting in this chair.
0: Yeah, and that was an ad you ran for the general election.
2: Yeah, uh, yes.
0: Yeah. Well, I was wondering too. You you were a part of the so he he wins in the general. And who was his who was his opposition there from the um, in the general election?
1: Uh, In in the general, uh, so you had the political leader of the Democratic Party, Lars Hersef. He was a very important person, and and uh, that's that's who we faced.
0: And then in the general election, was that close or was that? Was that a comfortable victory? Uh,
1: not. Uh, it, it was close enough. It was about uh, three percentage points. Oh. And uh, uh, which we consider pretty close.
0: Mm-hmm. And uh, you know,
1: Lars Herseth was a, a great campaigner. He was a farmer mm-hmm. and knew the issues very well, and yet he had a more democratic slant uh, to the issues than uh, uh, than Mickelson. Mickelson was. Uh, kind of a free-range Republican, so he he had the advantage. I would I would say Mickelson did. Yeah, and so Lars uh, put up a good fight, but uh, came up short. We did have uh, an interesting little uh, right before the primary. Uh, Lowell Hansen, the lieutenant governor, made a big play to take out Mickelson with uh, uh, an ad. And the ad was that, that Mickelson was, in fact, uh, in the pockets of kind of big business in the banking industry. Uh, and, and so they accused him of, you know, of being in charge of – or not so much in charge, but uh, being on the side of, of big banks – And the reason they accused Mickelson of that is he went on a hunting trip. And this was some kind of hunting trip. Even though it was, you know, 20, 30 years ago, uh, they spent $86,000, rented a private plane, and flew down to Mexico and shot Hmm. (laughs) doves, I should say. And uh, that uh, that was the accusation made, is that Mickelson was in the pocket of the bankers. So we, we were very worried about this attack. And so we had Mickelson sit on a stump with his shotgun. He said, you know, I think you want a governor who knows the leaders of the state, who knows the business leaders. You want somebody who's, uh, you know, helping to make the state grow. And that's the kind of governor I'm going to be. And that one ad just decimated the attack and and kept, you know, kept Mickelson in front.
0: Yeah. Well, and fast forward, he wins in 86 and fast forward four years and he comes. He asked you to come back and be a part of the 1990 reelection campaign. What what were the issues and how did that campaign differ from 86?
1: Well, uh, it was different in that uh, now Mickelson. Who was very talented in government? Uh, he was able to have a tremendous record, and he had created something called the Ready Fund, R-E-D-I, and uh, it was a, uh, a fund to help businesses grow. You could borrow from the Ready Fund, and he he did a lot of other uh, government projects like this that that gave him a, a distinct advantage, and. Uh, uh, and the other thing, Mickelson was different. His dad and family had vacationed in the Black Hills. And so uh, he was in love with the outdoors and the beauty of the Black Hills and didn't want it hurt. Well, the issue came up of what about mining interests? What about the, the trailings from, uh, from mining? Are they going to hurt the environment? And so Mickelson wound up being pretty much of a, of what I would call a, a liberal Democrat, uh, in that he he uh, he certainly had his uh, foot planted in the environmental issues. So that was that was unusual in that the environment and mining became plus issues for Mickelson and uh, helped him win handily.
0: So the, the trail that runs through the Black Hills today, named after him, that was really born out of his, his love for the hills and being outdoors?
1: Exactly. Yeah. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Well-earned. Another well-earned aspect of George Mickelson's reputation today is for the year of reconciliation. As Paul Wilson writes in the essay that uh, he was shocked one day when helping the governor prepare for the State of the State Address, Governor Mickelson and his wife Linda said that they wanted to address reconciliation with Native Americans in South Dakota. The state had just come off celebrating its centennial as a state in 1989, and in January of 1990, Governor Mickelson wanted to make that year about reconciliation. Out of that comes Native American Day in South Dakota and several other issues were addressed during the remainder of Governor Mickelson's term. I thought we'd end the podcast today with you hearing directly the, the uh, state of the state address, the portion of that which addressed and discusses the year of reconciliation and why Governor Mickelson wished to do so.
2: Following last year's celebration, a lady by the name of Lori Bartling from Herrick, South Dakota, who wrote about how much she loved the centennial activity in her community, and how much it bound their community together. She wrote to say, because of the centennial, our community has received the rewards of healed friendship. She was the first to use that term, healed friendships, and I hope that that can become the hallmark of this legislative session, and this next year, our first year of our second century. So it is most appropriate and fitting that in our first year of our second century that this should also be a year of reconciliation between the Indian people and the non-Indian people alike. Because this year we also commemorate another 100-year landmark, the death of one of the great Indian leaders, Sitting Bull, and the massacre at Wounded Knee. Sitting Bull himself once said, let's put our minds together to see how we can build a better life for our children. If he were here today, if he were sitting with us here today, these words would certainly carry the message of reconciliation as the first step toward a better life for our children. It is my sincere hope and prayer that the Indian and non-Indian people of South Dakota can experience the rewards of a healed friendship. What better way to start our second century? Thank you.
0: So thanks to our sponsor, the South Dakota Historical Society Foundation, and our partner, the South Dakota Public Broadcasting. But most importantly, thanks to you, the listener of this show. As always, if you like the show, please share it with friends and help us get the word out. The South Dakota Historical Society can be found on the web at history.sd.gov, and we'd appreciate you checking us out. Now go do some history.